Uh, maybe the headline is that alternatives are no longer alternative uh, in a portfolio. Uh, as you think about the evolution of this industry and the evolution of the space uh, within alternatives, we've gone from what once was a very concentrated group of hedge fund strategies just 20 years ago, uh, representing roughly $5 trillion US dollars, 6% of the total investable market, uh, to a very diverse uh, set of individual strategies and industries. You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Wealth Channel co-founder Andy Hagens. You know, one thing that we've learned in the past year is even when the market goes on a bull run, it doesn't mean that all is well for investors as a whole. In this country, we have a huge educational gap and behavioral gap in the world of finance and investing. So even, you know, when we have this bull run, not everyone participates, not everyone is invested in the stock market. Um, beyond the bull run for stocks, it's also been an interesting year for alternative investments. Alts, they've been on a huge bull run really for several years now. Uh, and really in the past year or two, there's been dislocation in the commercial real estate market and also dislocation and some other alternative asset classes. Uh, meanwhile, you have asset classes like private credit that are just on this tear that are, are the hot new thing. So we're standing at this crossroads. And my question is what action should investors and should advisors be taking to position our portfolios for this market environment? And how can we as investors and for any financial professionals listening, what can we do to help address this behavioral gap and education gap that we have in investing? To discuss these issues, joining me today is Aaron Philbeck, Managing Director and Head of Unify at Kaya. Aaron, welcome back to the show. Uh, great to be back, Andy. I'm, I'm excited to uh, have a discussion and congrats on all the success uh, of the podcast. Yeah, and, and right back at you. I mean, it's been the last time we talked, it was February of 2023. Doesn't that just feel like a, a lifetime ago? It sure does. Yeah, there, a lot has happened since then. Yeah, in the markets and at Kaya, a lot has happened, and we'll get to that. I know we have a lot to discuss, but to begin, I want to start with a, a big question. Aaron, in your view, what is the most underreported story right now in the world of investing, in the world of finance? Yeah, well, I, uh, I think it's an important question. It's a good question. Um, I'll probably focus more on alternatives, which is where uh, we're focused as an association. Uh, maybe the headline is that alternatives are no longer alternative uh, in a portfolio. Uh, as you think about the evolution of this industry and the evolution of the space uh, within alternatives, we've gone from what once was a very concentrated group of hedge fund strategies just 20 years ago uh, representing roughly $5 trillion U.S. dollars, 6% of the total investable market, uh, to a very diverse uh, set of individual strategies and industries that have become institutionally adopted at the largest asset owners, 
endowments, foundations, sovereign wealth funds, uh, and so on. And many of these strategies have uh, become a core part of many of these institutional allocations. Now, that may be a little bit different when we get into to the wealth management channel, which we can talk about. But many of these uh, strategies are industries in their own right. Uh, they are large uh, you know, pieces of the portfolio, uh, depending on the objectives of the institution, um, and really become a core piece of that allocation. Uh, so really, that alternative uh, term is more of an umbrella, more than anything, that groups a lot of these strategies together. But uh, you've mentioned a couple of them. Uh, some didn't exist 20 years ago. Um, and today, we've got many that are kind of full-blown uh, institutionalized strategies. So Aaron, if I'm hearing you right, basically it's the case that with the largest, most sophisticated investors, what were previously, you know, we all called them alternative investments, we can no longer consider them to be alternative investments if they're a, a core part of the portfolio. And, and for some of these asset classes, they have been now for decades. Is that right? Yeah, you know, labels uh, can vary depending on how you look at a portfolio. But if you look at some of the most sophisticated asset owners, uh, the largest endowments and sovereign wealth funds, uh, pension funds as well, many of them have kind of moved beyond what was the uh, traditional bucket, traditional uh, equity fixed income cash, and then this alternatives bucket where they just kind of threw a bunch of stuff together over in that corner of the portfolio and mm -hmm. hope for the best. Many of these institutional investors have kind of moved beyond that and are thinking more uh, thoroughly about the risk exposure that they're introducing uh, to the portfolio. So for example, private equity and public equity are both equity ownership in a company. Uh, it's just done differently. There's different structures around the ownership um, of that particular company. And so as you think about putting together a portfolio, it makes a little bit more sense to put private equity and public equity in the same conversation. Now, there's complexities associated with private equity that aren't necessarily found in public equity, uh, whether it's illiquidity or it's the life cycle, whether it's venture growth, buyout, uh, et cetera. Um, but at least from a philosophical portfolio construction perspective, uh, putting those at least in the same conversation seems to be where a lot of those institutional investors are moving uh, their thought process when it comes to uh, allocation. That is so interesting. I mean, be, be because the the term alternative investment, that label, it's always been a little bit awkward to begin with, right? Because it includes it includes some disparate asset classes, like you know, for instance, commercial real estate and private credit. Um, but the big reason that they were alternative investments were alternative investments were because they were illiquid, right? Was because they weren't publicly traded. But but your point is. The main risk with an equity investment may not be how it's traded, whether it's illiquid or traded on an exchange or increasingly in alts, you have sort of semi-liquid or intermittently liquid products. The main thing about that is what it's holding, what's inside the wrapper, whether it's liquid or illiquid wrapper is an equity and equities have their own risk, right? Beyond and aside and distinct from how they're traded. And, and that's now how these largest investors are looking at it, that, that, that they're sort of putting the wrapper aside and saying, what's really under the hood? This is an equity. So whether it's a private equity or a publicly traded equity, you know, a stock, 
it belongs in that equity slice of our portfolio. Is that right? Yeah, and I, and I don't want to discount all those complexities that are on top of uh, the the exposure. But when you get down to the true exposure in a portfolio, uh, you're exactly right. You know, equity is equity, uh, credit is credit. Uh, real assets is probably one of the best examples where we have publicly traded and privately traded assets that are very similar. Um, it's just really the the vehicle uh, that's there. So it's not that we should ignore those complexities and whether or not that's the illiquidity of the asset or the wrapper around it. It's the risk return profile uh, that you see from some of these strategies. All of that's very important. But when you think about just kind of basic portfolio construction, thinking in terms of those risk drivers and risk return profiles uh, makes a little bit more intuitive sense than putting private equity in a completely different category than what you might be uh, in your public equity allocation. So then if I'm just, if I'm an everyday investor or or an advisor with, with clients who are everyday investors, rather than allocating 20%, you know, like, like the 60, 40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, all the buzz was this is now the 50, 30, 20, you know, 50% stocks, 30% bonds, 20% alts. And in a way it's like, well, that's progress. That's evolution. That's a good thing. You know, I'm a fan of alts, I think in the right context, you know, not a, not a blind fan, but, but, but I am a fan, but that's, even even that 50 30 20 it's not really a good lens right because you're to, to your point you you'd sort of be saying i'm going to allocate 20% to to these types of wrappers or these types of things that are generally illiquid but that doesn't really capture their risk return profile right because the 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 60 40 the sort of science or logic behind that was on blending two asset classes that usually one, if one's zigged, the other's agged and they, you know, so that whole 50, 30, 20 thing, it, it kind of breaks down, doesn't it? Yeah. To some degree. Yeah. And that, and that correlation, we'll just ignore 2022, uh, you know, for, <laughs> yeah. for the correlations, uh, <laughs> not, not a big deal. Nothing happened that year. Um, but I, I think you're, you're right. And what, it, I think the question is what makes up that 20%. And are you starting with that allocation? Are you starting with that as a target allocation, or is that kind of the residual of uh, how you design the portfolio? And it just so happens that twenty percent of whatever stuff you put in to the portfolio becomes, you know, alternative. I think a more maybe a more intuitive way to to look at this is if you take sixty forty uh, as an example, and sixty forty is just one allocation of many. I, I it is. Kind of the conventional wisdom of a moderately aggressive portfolio but even that is just one way of doing it yeah. um but if you take that 60 40 think more about what's in that 60 and what's in that 40 and if there are pieces of the 60 40 that may need to be carved away for other things that's when the allocation might shift but your 60 percent allocation could be a combination of public equity and some private equity uh, same with uh, your fixed income allocation with some private credit, maybe real estate debt gets sprinkled in there, mm -hmm. um, some equity hedge funds gets put into the equity allocation. So I think it, it's, again, thinking about that risk exposure that you're, you've put into the portfolio and kind of slicing through um, each of those allocations to match the risk exposure. But I think just a blind kind of 50-30-20 or 60-20-20 or uh, you know, whatever allocation you come up with, 
if the assumption is that that 20% is just a combination of venture capital, equity market neutral, um, you know, private credit and infrastructure, well, that's just kind of throwing everything in one category without really giving a lot of thought uh, to the risk, but also to what you're trying to accomplish in the portfolio. So it sounds to me like more sophisticated investors, institutional investors, you know, folks with, you know, your education, you know, all of your knowledge, the, the more sophisticated finance set, they understand this, you know, they understand that private equity is intrinsically linked or maybe belongs in a bucket with public equities just as much as it belongs with alternatives. Is our advisors, our retail investors, our everyday investors, are they are they there yet, or is there is there to to, to ask an obvious question is the, is there an education gap there? Well, yeah, I, I think uh, maybe the indirect way of answering the question. I think that there we're at different starting points with the institutional investor, the uh, institutional allocator, and then the wealth. Uh, management channel. And I think the most obvious um, difference here is that the institutions have been at this for a much longer time period and thus have built up substantial allocations to many of these uh, strategies. So, you know, average allocation for an institution might be uh, 30%, 40%, maybe even up to 50 or 60%, depending on the objective of the institution. When you look at the average high net worth individual portfolio, that allocation is somewhere around 5%. Um, so we're, we're starting from a very low kind of allocation and base um, in a portfolio. So I think it's less about, are they doing it wrong? It's more about the question of, uh, do they even know where to kind of start and where to start integrating? So we're almost at a really interesting opportunity in the wealth management space uh, to start the conversation at ground zero instead of changing the way that we think about alternatives. Mm. It's more about that integration and where do I take my existing 60-40 portfolio and start to carve out some of those pieces where appropriate. And Aaron, to your point then, I mean, I, I feel like you're given a, a whole new sales pitch. I know you're not selling anything, but a whole new pitch for alts in general, which is if if I'm an advisor and I'm speaking with that client and, and it's really our first conversation about alternatives, it's no longer, you know, hey, we should consider a 10% or, or whatever X percent allocation to alternatives. It's more, let's design this overall portfolio. And then within some of these risk return profiles, for instance, equities, there are some sexier ways to own equities that maybe are a little further along that risk return profile, but but that's a good thing to include in a responsible way. So it's, it really is kind of reframing this whole discussion. It's, it's no longer about alternative investments per se. Is that right? Yeah. And I, I think you're exactly right. Uh, it almost takes the scariness out of, well, what, what are these alternatives that you're trying to throw in my portfolio? It becomes much more of a conversation. And again, we'll use examples of, of equity. Well, you've got this equity risk or this allocation that we're trying to include in the portfolio, that's going to include the large uh, mega cap stocks like your Apples and Amazons and 
um, metas uh, of the world. But we're also going to include some earlier stage companies. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to find the next uh, Uber or Snapchat. Um, and so you're getting exposure to the earlier part of that life cycle um, of an equity. Um, it just happens to have illiquidity. There's more risk associated with it, and you need to go in eyes wide open with that. But uh, you're almost you're just exposing yourself to a broader set of uh, companies that aren't in the public markets. Uh, same thing with the credit space. Uh, you know, the the fixed income market is is certainly very big and uh, has a lot of depth to it. But there are portions of the economy that are getting access to loans through the private credit uh, industry. And so, again, if you're not exposed to private credit, you may be missing pieces of that. Uh, from an economic uh, perspective. So it's really just kind of broadening the tool set instead of, uh, you know, using the scary term uh, alternatives and kind of throwing it all in one bucket. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, maybe putting on even, even different hats. So we have, on the one hand, we have these institutional investors who are at this very different starting point. They're They've been investing in alternatives for 20, 30, sometimes 50 plus years. And, and, and in many cases, they're rethinking alts. They're no longer alts. They're just now they're a core part of the portfolio. To your point, in the wealth management space now, we have uh, a lot of advisors with clients who have no allocation to alts or very little, which in a way could be a good thing because you're starting fresh, right? You're not having to sort of reset the conversation. You're really still starting the conversation. And and to your point, maybe there's a better way to start that conversation. What about a retail, like what about my mom, right? Do, does she need alts in her portfolio? You know, does the, does the median investor in, you know, on main street with X hundred thousand dollars, or, you know, maybe, a, maybe a million in their retirement, you know, they're, they're just hit retirement and they're kind of at that median or 60th or 70th percentile. Do they even need to bother with any of this? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. Uh, and I, I think it's an important one because I, I one, it depends on the on the client situation, but I, I would say at a high level, no, not everyone should be in alternatives. Uh, it, it depends on uh, the client's uh, financial plan, their tolerance for liquidity, their their ability to take on illiquidity um, in their portfolios. If you're a retiree and, and you've got to pull 10% out of your portfolio every single year to uh, you know, pay your bills, then maybe alternatives aren't the right solution for you, particularly when it comes to taking on uh, illiquidity risk. Uh, so I think from a client perspective, it really depends on the plan. But overall, it's going to be more appropriate for some, not appropriate at all for others, uh, but it really depends. The other way to answer that, I, I think, and this is an important one, is if you're an advisor and you're serving these clients, you also need to take a look at your own organization and your ability to, uh, one, select the managers, uh, because we all know in the alt space that manager selection is crucial. The dispersion between top quartile and bottom quartile managers is very wide, get, and that wideness varies depending on the asset class. But can you as an advisor either outsource through a platform or through your investment team, select the appropriate manager to have a good outcome um, in your client's portfolio? Um, and coupled with that, can you actually set up your operations 
within your firm to handle uh, things like capital calls and uh, documents that need signatures um, and kind of build an operational um, business around this as well. So there's a lot of uh, things that need to be rethought uh, from the advisor's perspective, uh, but it all starts with the client. Are my clients actually appropriate for this? And it really depends uh, on the plan. So I don't know your mom, um, but uh, <laughs> you probably know that situation better than than I do, but uh, it, it really depends. But, but I love that your answer is not an automatic yes, right? And and sure. your organization educates advisors and professionals about alternative investments. And it's just, it's very refreshing, you know, that honesty, that forthrightness that, that you're saying, no, not everyone needs alternative investments. And, you know, what, one thing, another thing I, I really have appreciated about Kaya and about you, Aaron, and just other folks from your organization that I've interacted with is the emphasis that you consistently place on the end client, you know, just that sort of ethos of being fiduciaries and we, we need more fiduciaries in, in the financial industry, just, just period. And at the end of the day, if this is helping folks achieve a worry-free retirement, then we're doing our job. And if it's not doing that, then it's, it's kind of like, why does this whole edifice even exist? Right. Yeah. So that focus on main street, I love, but, but your, you know, your area of coverage is alternative investments. Has there been enough fee compression in alternatives? Because that, that uh, at the end of the day, as an investor, that's often my complaint is there's these different asset classes that I want to invest in that I want to own. But then I'm always comparing it to Vanguard and I'm going, well, I can buy the S&P through Vanguard. It, what, what is it? Is it now like three basis points per year? It's just, it's almost free to own most of these liquid asset classes. And I know there's been some fee compression in alternatives, but but has there really been enough? Because when I'm when I'm looking at the the institutional investors who invest, I'm going, well, yeah, but they get they get special deals essentially, right? They get sure. OGP or GPLP deals. So, so does this end up with the, the, the sort of everyday investor or the accredited investor, do, do they end up getting the, the, you know, the bad end of the stick? I might be mixing metaphors here. Is, is it worth it yeah. for us? Yeah, it, it's a, another really good question in, in terms of uh, fees. So there has been a little bit of fee compression. It's certainly not been to the extent uh, that we've seen in uh, the long only active mutual fund space. Uh, for example, where we've seen quite a bit um, in the allocations. Um, uh, there are a couple of things I'll say. One, you know, when you look at a lot of these strategies, um, I think there will always be somewhat of a premium to what you see in uh, the long only equity or fixed income space uh, for a couple of reasons. Many of these GPs are very hands on with uh, these organizations. It requires a lot of sourcing and uh, diligence. Um, and it's more than just kind of a passive ownership of a couple of shares in, in a particular security. Uh, so there is a hands-on component. Many of the best GPs uh, take a more operational um, lens to the portfolio companies that they own. And so that requires expertise, uh, patience, uh, et cetera. Um, so I, I think there will always be some kind of a premium um, associated with that. What that premium looks like, uh, I don't have my crystal ball to see where those fees uh, end up. So that that's one angle. 
Um, where I think we have seen a little bit of innovation and some fee compression is on the availability of different vehicles um, that are available, particularly to uh, the accredited investor um, or high net worth individual uh, through some more semi-liquid, more regulated uh, fund structures like interval funds, mm. tender offer funds, uh, where typically when they're registered, you're not allowed to charge performance fees uh, or incentive fees, for example. Uh, so really it's an all-in management fee that you're charging. Um, so at some point, and we've seen a little bit of this, where these regulated vehicles, which may operate a little bit differently than a traditional drawdown fund uh, structure might, uh, those fees have actually become a little bit more competitive, uh, especially as new people uh, enter the space. So um, I think all of that is just maybe important background. Uh, the last thing I'll say on, on fees is, and this is true in active management on, on the traditional side um, as well, is really paying attention to net returns. Um, so fees may be higher um, on some of these asset classes, but typically you're earning uh, either excess returns uh, or even just high absolute returns. Um, and so uh, I think always focusing on what you're paying, that's an important uh, piece of the conversation, but also figure out what you're getting in terms of uh, the actual returns that you're getting for your clients. Price is what I pay. Value is what I get, right? And Exactly. Yeah, I mean, to put it in concrete terms, then if if the bond fund pays 5% a year, and the private credit fund pays 10% a year. Maybe it's a little bit further out on the risk return profile, but but it's not so much more risky that would, you know, that 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 it would be generating that much of a delta in return. And so then when you say, well, this private credit requires active management, and maybe that's 150 basis points, you can kind of weigh that whole big picture and say, okay, but even after that 150 basis points. This is yielding 8.5, you know, or sure. Yeah. So th that makes sense to me. You know, back in the beginning of, of this episode, I, I brought up talking about not every investor has even participated in this bull market. And then, you know, we talked about a lot of investors, even financial advisors, don't really understand alternative investments, aren't really using those much, if at all, in client portfolios. And so my question, um, about the education gap here mm. that we have. It's really, it's the whole country and the whole industry. It's right. It's, it's, it's both. It's among everyday investors and among financial advisors. Three word question. Is it hopeless? <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't think it's hopeless. I, I think there is, there is hope at the end of the tunnel, uh, Andy, when it comes to, to, uh, integration and adoption, of alternatives where appropriate, going back to that uh, question on client appropriateness. Um, I, I do think there is um, an education gap in this in this space and an education gap, not in the sense of we need more people to adopt alternatives. We just need people to ask better questions uh, of the, the products that are being put in front of them. And that's where Kaya's really come into uh, the fold with this Unify uh, platform that we launched uh, a couple of years ago, where we basically uh, got together a group of people in our advisory council that uh, that we brought together um, asset management, some of the biggest uh, global banks, some of the RIAs um, in the industry, 
and really thought through if we can get all three of these groups to speak the same language, understand the language of the client, the objectives of the client, all the way from product creation down to the advisor that's serving them, uh, that's a win for the industry. And, and hopefully, and I think the net result will be adoption increases, uh, but it also will help people avoid making bad decisions uh, within, uh, within their portfolios. So we've created a number of programs on the Unify by Kaya uh, platform, which are geared towards teaching asset management distribution, financial advisors at global banks, and the RIA space uh, about one, what are these strategies? Uh, how do they work? Uh, what's the risk return profile? What can we expect? Uh, but importantly, how can we think about integration into a portfolio going back to the very beginning of this conversation? It's not some other piece of the portfolio that doesn't have any relation to the rest of it. We should be thinking in terms of those risk return drivers and uh, slotting them in accordingly. And, and that's framing the whole conversation in the right context, right? Which is exactly client outcomes. So I understand you've launched a new fundamentals program, or is is it a designation or credential? It's it's a it's sort of a course that I can take online. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So uh, just last week, uh, uh, early January, we uh, launched uh, a completely redesigned fundamentals of alternative investments. Uh, it's certificate. It's an online course that you can sit through. Uh, there's no letters after your name, but uh, you certainly get a certificate of completion, digital badge that you can share um, on LinkedIn. Uh, but basically, we, we've taken one of our certificate programs that's been around for about a decade um, that was really geared towards uh, helping people, particularly in the wealth management space, understand the 101 of alts. Uh, so the early edition of, of this certificate program walk through hedge funds, private equity, uh, real assets, uh, some structured products in there um, as well. And so by the end of it, you can at least have a good foundational understanding um, of these different strategies. Um, we've had about 12 to 13,000 people go through that certificate since inception. Wow. Um, but to have launched this new edition of the certificate, which I'm very excited about, uh, which was uh, really the work of not only Kaya, but this advisory council in the industry at large. We had a lot of uh, players that helped uh, help us think through the learning objectives of the modules, uh, the way that we position alternatives in the industry with representatives on those three groups, asset management, uh, the global banks, and uh, the RIA space. So that truly, by the end of this program, it, it is a for the industry, by the industry, uh, certification uh, experience. Um, the program is 15 hours um, and really walks through the foundations um, of alternative investments. Uh, one of the unique characteristics, uh, going back again to the earlier conversation uh, of the curriculum, is that we're actually grouping alternatives according to their risk return profile. So there's no module on private equity or hedge funds or uh, private credit. We're actually breaking up the universe into those uh, component parts of uh, what's really driving this particular strategy. And so you've got a module that includes venture capital alongside long short equity, uh, direct lending alongside mezzanine uh, finance alongside long short credit, all the different real assets, whether it's real estate, infrastructure, uh, commodities, uh, and so on. And then we've got 
kind of all the other alternative strategies that might move in different directions uh, or might borrow risk return profiles from some of the other categories like a global macro or managed futures, uh, insurance like securities, digital assets, uh, and so on. Um, so that by the end of this program, you not only have a good understanding of the history and, and the, the why behind alternatives, how you access them, uh, but also how do you kind of fit all of these different various strategies into a portfolio uh, where appropriate. You know, Aaron, one thing that I love about what you said, uh, how that program came into being was meeting with all the different stakeholders, all the different uh, touch points in the industry, whether it's wealth management or fund managers, banks, you know, be because that shows to me you're making an effort to use the language that people are already using and, and sort of really getting into the minds of uh, the professionals who will use the program and your future students and, and tapping in just to the, even just the language that they're already using. That's so powerful in designing curriculum or in educational leadership, because it's it, to your point or to Kaya's mission, like if, if we don't have a common language to even discuss these things, we are literally at step zero, right? Or step negative one, maybe. Right. <laughs> And hopefully that hopefully that language is the language that the client is expecting. Uh, and that's an important thing. Working, starting with the individual investor, the client, and working right backwards. Uh, so if we can actually teach everyone to speak that a language of the client, then that conversation becomes very clear. I, I love it. And you know, that addressing the education gap with alternative investments, really with finance as a whole, that's a huge it's just a huge job. It, uh, it's, it's almost overwhelming in a way, but at the same time, I just, I really appreciate what Kaya does in just at really at the ground level, addressing it one person at a time. I mean, at the end of the day, that's the only way it, it gets solved or that gap gets bridged, right? One person at a time. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's our mission. That's what we're trying to do. So you all, you know, you, you mainly work with advisors, wealth managers, industry professionals, educating them, whether it's with your prestigious designation or some of these more courses, more short-term programs. But, but I, I keep thinking, well, educating the wealth managers, probably like in a way that maybe the most important thing in, in the, in terms of the retail investor, because that's where the that's where the the retail investor interacts really with the finance industry in many cases. But how concerned should we be about that retail investor's education gap? You know, what in terms of because because you you've you've seen financial advisors, right? Kind of at that grassroots level. You've talked with hundreds, maybe thousands of them. Like, like what keeps you up at night? What, what's, what's maybe the, still the biggest blind spot or the thing that makes you go, yeah, like, like, you know, that, that, that is the thing that we need to fix to really serve retail investors as, a, as an industry. Well, I, I think the, it's the importance of the advisor, um, that, you know, because the retail investor does interact with this industry typically through that relationship. We really haven't gotten to a place in an industry. There, there's exceptions, of course, where the individual investor can directly invest uh, in uh, private equity, for example. Typically, you're going through an advisor who's usually a fiduciary looking out for the best interests 
um, of the client. And so I don't know if it keeps me up at night, but I think it just it, it reinforces the importance of the role of financial advice, the role of a financial advisor. And from our perspective, if we can articulate uh, the pros and cons, the do's and don'ts of alternatives to that advisor uh, who then can communicate it to the client. I think we've done our job, uh, but I think that's a constant evolution of, of education. I, I don't think you can just do it once and then you know, you're done for 15 or 20 years. So it's a constant conversation uh, that we should be having. But again, if we can get distribution teams and asset managers to speak to the advisor in a certain way, and then the advisor to speak to a client in a certain way, uh, that gives me a lot of hope and gives me a lot of optimism. I like it. I, I love the optimism. And I, I think it's necessary, right? Because because it's a tough job, right? Trying yeah. to address that education. It is. It's a, it's a big, huge, fairy job. So you need that can-do attitude, which you have, that I very much appreciate it. Um, I know we've sort of said, we said at the beginning of the episode, alternative investments are dead. They're no longer a thing. They're, you know, they're really just core investments. But that being said, I also want to learn about alternative investments. I want to enroll in your new program. I'm, I'm guessing, is it open to individual investors as well as wealth managers? Yeah, so there's, uh, there's a couple of ways you can access uh, the programs on Unify Fundamentals, uh, of course, being one of them. Anyone on our website um, can enroll uh, in, in the program. So it's available to individuals. Uh, all you need is a credit card uh, to go through that, uh, that process. Uh, we also work, and a vast majority of, of what we do um, with Unify in particular is we work with a lot of institutions and corporate uh, enrollments as well. So if you're a large asset management uh, you know, team, our distribution team, uh, you've got a large uh, team of financial advisors, uh, we can work with you directly and there's information on our website uh, to come up with some corporate enrollments uh, for the program as well. But it's both pathways are available depending on uh, who you are and and whether or not your team needs it or you just need it as an individual. Awesome. And we'll be sure to link to that in our show notes, which are always available at wealthchannel.com. Aaron, we're almost out of time, uh, but I know we have a lot of institutional investors, financial advisors, all even individual investors who might be interested about in this new program in our audience. Um, so we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes, but where can anyone go to connect with you personally, just on LinkedIn or because I know you do a lot of public speaking, you're on a lot of podcasts and things like that. Where can they connect with you personally? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, I guess X now. Um, so uh, you can you can look for me on either platform and uh, send me a connection, send me a message. Happy to happy to talk. OK, you're on Twitter. I'm making a note, Aaron, because I got to follow you on. I still call it Twitter. Come on, you can, call it, you can still call it. People know what we mean when we say Twitter. Yeah. Aaron, thanks again for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Andy. Uh, great conversation. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.